Welcome to the Renewing the Center podcast. My name is Chris McDaniel, and we want to thank you for joining us today. Here at Renewing the Center, we're answering God's call to work for the spiritual renewal of the church. For more information, visit renewingthecenter.org. We're glad to have you with us today. Now, let's make some space for God's renewing work. Today, we're going to take a bit of a detour. Well, not really a detour, but we're going to look at something that many of you may have never read. We're going to read from the Apocrypha, which is a collection of books between the Old and New Testament. And if you grew up in the evangelical church or parts of the charismatic church like me, you've never even encountered the Apocrypha until maybe today. So it's the first time for everything. I'm going to read a passage from a book called Ecclesiasticus, uh, beginning in chapter 11, verse 7 through 20, or 13 actually. And then we'll pray and Spend some time, and then I'll explain to you a little bit about why we're reading what we're reading. But first, let's, let's hear the word. Do not find fault before you investigate. Examine first and then criticize. Do not answer before you listen, and do not interrupt when another is speaking. Do not argue about a matter that does not concern you, and do not sit with sinners when they judge a case. My child, do not busy yourself with many matters. If you multiply activities, you will not be held blameless. If you pursue, you will not overtake, and by fleeing, you will not escape. There are those who work and struggle and hurry, but are so much more in want. There are others who are slow and need help, who lack strength and abound in poverty, but the eyes of the Lord look kindly upon them. He lifts them out of their lowly condition and raises up their heads to the amazement of many. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear from this passage in a book that maybe some of us have never even heard of. I pray, God, that we would receive truth, that we would sit with it and reason with it. And God, I pray that we would grow as we consider this ancient text in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Ecclesiasticus is not to be confused with the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in the Old Testament. If you follow the Anglican lectionary, occasionally our lectionary readings will include books from this cluster called the Apocrypha, which, like I said, exists between the Old and New Testaments, were written uh, after the conclusion of the Old Testament and before the era of the New Testament commenced. If you're familiar with the um, the Jewish feast or festival of Hanukkah. Hanukkah um, actually um, derives itself from events that occurred during the time of the Apocrypha. And you can read in 1 Maccabees the story of Judas Maccabeus and Hanukkah. So what you see in these apocryphal books uh, are writings from history that the framers of the Bible that many of you have in your hands um, thought these books are useful for encouragement and edification, but not for the setting of doctrine. So basically, Anglicans view the Apocrypha like we would a really, really uh, solid writing from St. Augustine um, or a church father or maybe like a C.S. Lewis or someone else. You're not going to hang your hat completely on it, and yet there's real wisdom. There are pearls here for us to consider. And so a lot of you maybe grew up in a church tradition where you were taught to be afraid of anything that's not the Bible. And I would just say to you, you actually weren't taught that because almost all of us have read books by other Christian authors or other Jewish writers, and we've received a lot of truth and goodness there. That's the way we're going to view this book. Uh, And frankly, some of the very practical teaching that we just read. And so I'm excited to jump into this and frankly expose you to something that might open up your eyes to read some of these historical books. I tell you, there's some great, great stuff in the Apocrypha. 
So the first thing that we see here is an invitation from the writer to slow down and be deliberate before jumping into action. And I don't know if you're anything like me, this is timely, timely insight. Because a lot of us are prone to a kind of fire-ready aim mindset. And if you're one of those people, such as myself, this is really, really good wisdom. One of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is because we believe God is inviting us to learn how to be reflective versus reactive. And there is so much wisdom in this passage that I just read. So listen to the wisdom here. The writer says, investigate before you find fault. So what's he saying there? He's saying, don't be quick to jump to conclusions. He's saying, don't criticize before you find out what's actually happened. How often are we prone to this, to jump to conclusions, to speak words of criticism, maybe to another friend about something that you misunderstood or weren't fully, fully uh, aware of or dialed into? So the writer says, investigate before you find fault. Secondly, the writer says, listen before you answer. And what he's basically saying there is just some good old-fashioned insight. Don't assume you know what someone's saying. Slow down and actually listen. <laughs> I once heard someone say, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. Do the math. You should be doing twice as much hearing as you are speaking. But my favorite thing that the writer says here in this short passage is this. Don't argue about a matter that does not concern you. And guys, if we're honest, this is like what Twitter is all about, arguing about things that are none of our business. And many of us, we get out of our lanes, right? And we begin to, to throw heated opinions into things that really don't concern us, that aren't our business. And so one of the things here that the writer is trying to get us to see is that it's okay and actually really appropriate and a mark of wisdom and maturity when we learn to leave stuff alone that isn't ours. Speaking of knowing what's yours versus theirs or someone else's, I just finished a book written by a man named Steve Cuss, so spelled like the cuss word, C-U-S-S. He wrote a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. This was one of the most helpful books I've read in quite some time about the internal life of a, of a leader. And so if you're a pastor or a leader, you for sure should read this, but I would submit that for anybody who's leading in any capacity, this is really, really good stuff. And what he spends a lot of time doing in this book is really addressing what I just talked about, learning the difference between what belongs to you and what belongs to others. See, that's a key to managing anxiety. One of the reasons why I think many of us feel so anxious right now is that we feel like everything is our responsibility to figure out. In each of the categories that I just explored a few moments ago, investigating before finding fault, listening before answering, not arguing things that don't concern you. Each of those categories have to do with understanding what is yours and what is someone else's. See, anxiety grows in us when we flood our banks, when we engage in ways that are not helpful or redemptive. See, we make messes when we get outside our lane. And humility in the, in the child of God is learning to stay in the lane that God has provided for you. And I'm just going to say, as a, as a way of confession, much of the sin of my life has come from overdoing it, um, over-functioning, to use uh, Ed Friedman's language, uh, sort of getting outside my lane and behaving reactively, jumping to conclusions, not understanding a thing, but weighing in any way, throwing out strong opinions when I had no right to do so. And you may be the same. So I want you to think about your life right now. <clears throat> Where are things complicated in your life? <clears throat> Excuse me. Where are things unnecessarily difficult or confusing? 
Have you contributed to that complexity through your own reactivity? See, I think there are two ways that we become reactive. We react in our external engagement, i.e. we say or do things that make life harder. Or, for those of you who are more introverted, we sometimes react in our internal engagement. We think and believe things that make life and situations more difficult. So whether you're a person that tends to react externally or internally, I would submit that most of us struggle with reactivity. And that's where a lot of our anxiety comes from. So the writer says... In the second half of this passage, after he unpacks those three categories, kind of where we get it wrong, he says we have to learn to focus and to slow down. Have you ever heard the construction saying, if you measure twice, you'll only cut once? Basically, if you get the measurement right, you won't mess the board up. You'll just cut the board once. See, the writer here says if you multiply activities If you're spread too thin, if you're reactive, he says, you will not be blameless. You'll make mistakes and you'll make life harder. And many of us right now can feel this. We just look at our lives and think, gosh, I make things hard because I'm I'm frantically moving. I'm reactively moving from activity to activity or responsibility to responsibility. And so what the poet says is we have to learn how to slow down. We have to learn how to deliberate. And I want you to think about that word deliberate. The root of that word is freedom, liberty, the word from which we have the word liberty. To deliberate is to create space so that you get it right. And the only way you do that is to slow down. So hear what the poet is saying. When we live in a, in a non-deliberative way, when we live in a reactive way, when we multiply activities... It feels like we pursue, but we never catch up. It's like we're chasing something that we'll never actually grasp. And if you feel that way right now, it might be that you're overdoing it. You're overfunctioning. If you feel like you're chasing something that you can never quite catch up to, if there's a vicious cycle of hurry and worry and work, the invitation is to learn how to take space and to slow down. So what the the poet says is you've got a group that is always frantically working, and then you have a group that learns to slow down and acknowledge their need for help. The writer says these, the ones who go slow and ask for help, these have the eye of God on them. So here we see a preferred posture. Y'all, this is as practical as it gets. If we slow down our frantic pace... Even if we're afraid of what will happen if we do, if we just step back and say, what I'm doing is not working, I've got to take some time, I've got to um, create some space to get and gain proper perspective. When we do that, this writer says that the eyes of God turn toward us. It's like if I look to God, he looks to me. Isn't that cool? See, a lot of us think, well, I've got to look to God. I've got to trust God. I've got to do this for God. But what we hear in this passage is that if I look to God, then God actually, his eyes look to me. He puts his gaze on me. When I slow down and ask for help, rather than trying to make everything happen by myself, God actually looks to me. And then God lifts me up. Not my own hand, not my own strength, not my own effort, not my own worry, not my own anxious toil, but God does this. See, your hands, my hands, will only lift me up or you up so far. And I love how this passage ends. It it ends with people being amazed because they see someone lifted up and they think, well, that person certainly did not do that on their own. So is your life ultimately about you? Or is it about you looking to God and receiving help?
Do you want to be known as someone who did it all by yourself? And frankly, if we're honest, that's what the world encourages is just do it all by yourself. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I mean, that saying, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, was meant to be an oxymoron, a a non-starter when it came out in the early Western days. It's impossible to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but we've now made it some kind of a weird virtue, as if it were possible. Your life is ultimately about God lifting you up. That will only happen when you slow down and ask for help. This has been almost like a rebuke to me, so I share it with you with love in my heart because I feel like the Lord looks at all of us and says, you just try to solve too many things on your own. So here I think we've been given some real practical uh, pearls of wisdom from the Apocrypha, and I hope that you have received it in the spirit in which I shared it. This is good truth for us, good for us to think about. So think about your life. Father, I pray that you would help my friends to slow down, to ask for help, I pray, God, that you would break us out of every vicious cycle we would find ourselves falling into. And God, where hurry and worry, where work and anxiety would mark us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to take space so that we would be marked by your hand and your gaze looking at us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to continue meditating on what you heard today, take some time to recall an idea or an image that encouraged or challenged you in this episode. When things stand out to us in God's Word, or in our lives, or in what we're reading, or in devotional talks, it often means that God is offering us His help and His guidance. When you have your idea or image in mind, carry it with you as a prayer, coming back to it in the spaces throughout your day. How does it speak to you and where you are right now? What does it say about God and what He wants for you? Speak to Him about these things. Listen for his still small voice and respond to him as simply and as honestly as you can. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you back here again with us next time at Renewing the Center. 